Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the fifth episode, I spoke with Bobby Gosho. Bobby is probably the most known as being a co-host of a design podcast called High Resolution, which by the way, I highly, highly recommend. Um, Bob is also a co-founder of a startup called Candid Co. Uh, he has more than 15 years of experience in the design world, and he's a big proponent of bringing design closer to business. Um, in, in this episode, Bobby talks about his early experience, how he started uh, connecting his love of art with business, and then how this resulted in a design career. We talked specifically how... At Candid Co, they do user research that is rooted in the business problems. Very, very interesting part. And then we also talk about how to measure and present results of your design work. And we also talked about um, how to hire or how to find designers who are more business savvy. I mean, how Bobby does that or how to train a designer to become uh, more business savvy. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. If you want to learn more about business, um, you can visit my website, beyondusers.com, and there you can take a five-day email course, which I put together. It's called Mini MBA for Designers. And in these emails, I present five business concepts that are relevant for designers and that I've also used in my design process. So that's available on beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here's a conversation with Bobby Goschel. Cool. So, Bobby, this time it's your time to be the guest. <laughs> How does it feel? You know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm shy, <laughs> but it's not it's not on camera, which is which is helpful. So I'm hiding I'm hiding in a room in my office, and uh, and I'm surrounded by very familiar things, which is a very good thing because <laughs> that means that means that I'm partly comfortable. <laughs> And I think like not having the video and all the video equipment actually makes it much more comfortable than when you you guys did the whole high resolution and you always went into the uh, guest's office. That must have been pretty stressful and probably like hard on you, right? Yeah, Alan, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I was excited sure. when, you told, when you told me about this project. Um, I'm glad that we're jumping into high resolution now because I, th- I feel like we're both kindred spirits because we're 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 accomplishing similar things in similar ways. And you know, uh, you're now bearing the brunt of what Jared and I, you know, kind of bore. Is that the word bore bared? I think it's bared. I think we bared last year, you know, when we when we went on on our journey for high resolution and finding great guests and getting them comfortable to sit in front of a camera, you know, it's it's yeah. a com- it's a completely different universe than when you just have a, a nonchalant uh, casual yeah. conversation with a friend at a bar over some drinks. And and um, you know, it it's uh, it's it's fun to be on this side because let me tell you I know firsthand how much pressure you must be feeling right now because I know because I know what it takes to make a good interview happen so yeah. I, I, I promise I'll do my best to be a, an exciting and entertaining and informative guest cool cool I appreciate it so <laughs> I know you guys always started with the same question and I 
I do the same, but it's not the same question. Um, I mean, not the same as you guys had. So I like to start a little bit more personal. So what I want to hear is how guests got into design, right? So you were born and raised in Mumbai, India. So yeah. how did you get into design? Was it back there or was it like when you moved to the USA? You know, I, I uh, so I lived in, in India for about 15 or 16 years before I moved to the States. Um, I was about, I think I was 15 years old when I moved to the States. So um, I discovered design when I was 16 and uh, it was completely unremarkable. I wish I had a fantasy, beautiful story of, you know, how I came across design and I'll talk about that. But before, but before I, I, uh, before I got into design in India, I was, you know, I considered myself an artist. I, I loved art. I loved to draw. I competed in art, which is like a weird, very weird thing to say, you know, like competing yeah. in art is, is just kind of silly. To say out loud. <laughs> but that's, but that's a thing. That's a thing, you know, in, in Bombay, when I was in, when I was in, uh, in high school there, uh, there was this countrywide art competition. Um, and it was for every state and every city. Um, and I, I placed an unremarkable fourth place. Uh, in this competition, and I got a little little merit certificate, uh, and that was a very cool thing for me at the moment, you know. And and yeah. and um, yeah, I, I've always just loved aesthetic value. Like I love looking at beautiful things. I love experiencing beautiful experiencing experiences, and um, I value that so much uh, that I think it's just carried me. You know, it's carried that thread. That thread's carried through my entire life. And by the way, you know, India. I don't know if you've ever been. It's it's a kind of country where it's not hard to find highly textured, beautiful, diverse aesthetics because mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's a country of substance. It's a country of rich food and rich personalities uh, and rich history and rich people um, and, and kind of uh, even its richness uh, in its, uh, you know, in, in the ways in which it's bad, you know, it's, it's this spectrum, it's this spectrum of, uh, of, of uh, it's, it's actually hardly a spectrum. It's really, uh, a very thin middle and it's really good or really bad, you know, like it's, it's one of those things. And so, um, experiencing all that, you know, gave me, it, it, it has gotten me to value, uh, the richness of what I, what I now know to be design. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, but it wasn't something that I discovered until way later in my life when I was 16 or 17. Um, though I will say <clears throat> for my, my, my experience in India, I, uh, I loved art but I also loved to sell. I, I realized very early on when I was, you know, nine or 10 years old that um, I could make money in India, you know, when kids were off playing cricket or, or field hockey or hide and seek, you know, I used to come home. Uh, by, by the way, I love cricket. I'm a huge cricket fan, but um, you know, I used to come home from school and I used to get out of, you know, my, my crayons or my, my watercolors. And I used to, I used to paint Disney cartoons or color in Disney cartoons. And I used to stand in the elevator of my building and I used to wait for parents to come home from work and I used to sell them my drawings. And I used to convince them about how, you know, it was, it was a worthwhile purchase for their kids. It would make their kids feel special. And so even back then I kind of knew how to manipulate that little, you know, the, that little voice in people's heads, which by, which by the way, has turned out to be a very useful tool or a very useful tactic later on in life. But I, I, I don't know. It's just something that's always been with me. And I kind of appreciate that. Okay. So tell me about this, this you selling your art to parents. How exactly did you do it? Like, who did you sell to? How, what was your pitch? Like, did you, how did you come up with that? 
<laughs> okay, so now, see, you're dating me because now I'm going back, uh, ooh, to about 20 years, uh, maybe 22, 23 years. But um, I, uh, if I remember correctly, I realized that a couple things were in my favor. First, I was smart enough to realize that I was a child and um, and that being a kid actually gives you some inherent advantages yeah uh, where where people think you're cute and you know like they they want to listen to you they want to give you their time and like they don't want you to feel bad yeah. and I was play I was definitely playing on all of those emotions like I was I was not innocent <laughs> I was not innocent whatsoever uh, so that 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 was kind of one thing that I had going for me that I knew uh, the other the other thing that I had going for me was our building elevator was really really slow nice <laughs> really slow right and and i had nothing else to do it was you know it was four in the evening um i got to my homework later in the evening you know like i used to do it when my when my parents got home from work um and i had all this free time so i had about three hours uh of of kind of nothingness and i just decided so one day and i don't know i don't know why or how, i guess i know why i made the decision i just thought it would be nice to have some money. Um, but um, I don't know how I exactly came about to making the decision, but it, it, it almost felt, um, it felt automatic. It almost felt natural to me to just do this. I wasn't afraid of it. It wasn't a big decision for me. Um, I just wanted to have, you know, I just wanted to see if I could do it. And I did. Mm -hmm. And I stood at, you know, I, I, I kind of remember the first time uh, I got into the elevator with that first parent coming in. Um, and I kind of, I, I always held out the drawing first because it captured their attention, um, you know, kind of held out their drawing. And um, uh, by the way, I used to be, I, I was friends. Sorry, I'm going to take a sidebar for a second because sure. I actually learned, I learned this. This is how I learned how to do this. Uh, I was friends with a lot of street kids. So like homeless kids, you know, I used to like bring them back to my house. We used to you know, play. Uh, I used to introduce them to my friends. We used to all play cricket together. I used to skip school so that I could, you know, hang out with them. I just, I, these kids were great, but you know, part of what they did in their, in their day um, was they used to beg for money, right? There was, there were street kids. And so I actually watched them uh, and I learned some of these tricks from them. Uh, and it's actually kind of amazing for me to think back on it right now. It just hit me that that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, but but that, you know, those are some of the, the tactics that I learned from them is what I brought to the elevator. So kind of holding your hand out before you ask for something so that you have this forced attention, you show them something and then you just keep talking until they give you what you want. Right. And, and, and here's, here's the, the, the inherent kind of final advantage that I had is yes, I was a child. Yes, I was in an elevator. Um, and yes, the elevator was slow, but the fact that I was in an elevator, um, allowed, that kind of forced people to pay attention to me for a long time. Whereas in the street, in the street, you can just kind of walk away or drive away in an elevator. It's close proximity, you know, like you're, it's, it's really, really hard. It's really hard to ignore, ignore a kid. And so, um, anyway, that's, you know, that was, those were kind of my tactics, man. Like I was thinking about those things when I was like nine or 10 years old and it's kind of nuts to just to vocalize that. Yeah. That sounds really, really cool. Like, but how do you think this, like, what you learned at that age, how does it translate to what you uh, do today? Well, you know, selling is a really important part of design. I talk about this a lot with my teams. Uh, I hire for this, not necessarily for sales, but for the, the willingness on the part of the designer to kind of learn how to influence decisions, uh, not just their customers' decisions to purchase their product and use their product, but internal kind of business decisions 
to make uh, the best decision for both the business and the user. And there are compromises that you make. You cannot, as a business, only make great decisions for the user. You will, you know, it, it will drive you broke. Yeah. You will lose a lot of money if that's the case. And you cannot only make good decisions for the business. And a lot of businesses do that. And they fall to the wayside because they lose touch with what's important about their product is that value transfer between the customer and the business. And so, you know, selling is just, it's part and parcel of design. You're mm-hmm. constantly selling. You're selling subjective ideas. You're selling people to give you time to stay, with, you know, kind of get with you in a room and talk about how they do their work so that you can bring that context into your design. You're selling customers. Um, you're selling relationships inside of your business. You're selling to biz- to, to, to designers who have not yet made a decision to join your company and you're selling them on the vision of your company. This is, it's just part of being a leader. And so, you know, how I use it day to day, my goodness, I, I think I'm selling all day, every day. Um, I don't, I don't think this is, it's, and it's, it's not a conscious decision. It's a reflex. You know, um, if you, if you want something to happen a certain way, you need to persuade people to do it your way, especially in a company that's diverse with diverse uh, opinions and outlooks on on uh, process, outlooks on product. Um, you know, you need to get people to your side, so to speak, um, or the side of the user, and that requires a level of persuasion that comes through the art of selling. So you said like you're building, well, you're hiring now also designers, and you're looking for this skill. How do you see if someone has this skill? Well, I, so it's really, so first of all, it's not in the portfolio, you know, (laughs) portfolio, the portfolio is kind of the first, it's, it's the first layer of offense. Um, And that's before you get someone in a room, you review their work to see if they're worth talking to. But when you get them in a room, I mean, great leaders of all kinds, not just design leaders, you know, great leaders of all kinds understand how to read body language. They understand how to poke uh, at bullshit in someone's answers. Um, You know, so you need to poke and you need to ask people, okay, tell me about this design. And then they start talking about the design. And then you ask, you know, you kind of poke a little bit more and you say, well, you know, when you shipped it, how, you know, how did you measure success? And Mm -hmm. you can even bullshit your way through that. Um, And then, you know, you ask them, well, uh, you know, once you measured, uh, you know, did you notice room for improvement? And generally you can bullshit your way through that. And then you say, okay, great. Now tell me about, you know, the processes. Tell me about the conversations you had internally. Tell me about how you got access to the metrics to make, you know, to, to understand the measurement uh, that you're making these decisions on. And suddenly you're venturing out of design. Right, because the measurement happens in the product world. It happens in the marketing world. It happens in the sales world. It happens in the finance world. Mm-hmm. Design is only one part of the entire customer experience. And now, you know, in a, within a course of about thirty-five minutes, a good leader is going to be able to poke enough holes in someone's background uh, to see if this person is smart enough to continue to pull that thread and carry the conversation. Uh, and and the fact that they actually know what they're talking about on the business side. Um, so that's how you do it. You don't do it by asking people, you know, do you understand business? And, <laughs> yeah. do you, you know, do you, do you spend time with people in the business? You, you pick a project and you force them to go really, really deep on it. And I'm telling you all, and you 
do that and you notice, and this is why one of the reasons I started high resolution, most designers, and by most, I'm talking 85, 90% of designers that I spoke to couldn't talk beyond the pixels. And that kind of, it broke my heart because it's, you know, and it's partly their fault, but it's mostly not their fault. No one told them that it was their job. And so I made it my mission and my goal to hire people with at least the mindset, if they didn't have the experience, at least they have the mindset and willingness to learn uh, that way of thinking. Um, or, um, you know, I was, I was uh, very open or I continue to be very open to telling people, hey, like you have a very one-sided kind of, you know, single view, narrow-minded, narrow, narrow band view on design. Mm-hmm. And your career is not going to be a long career and you will always – you know, you'll always find something to not like about your job if you don't widen your scope and understand the business side a little bit more. Because frankly, a lot of exciting decisions get made in the business. And so anyway, that's kind of a long-winded answer. I, I, I hope that was useful. Definitely, definitely. Have you ever hired anyone who didn't have such a high um, level of business knowledge and then you basically kind of trained him um so if yes how did you do it and if no how would you do it if you would be in that situation oh absolutely i you know so first of all designers with a business background it's a very rare thing yeah um so if if my answer was you know no i never do then my design team is of two people you know it's very (laughs) it's just it's a small it's a very small world with very few real stars and so You know, one of the, you know, I had a designer at my, my last company, um, who was extremely talented, but you know, he found, he found, uh, marketing design or let's say growth design to be kind of a waste of time because it wasn't a meaningful enough product problem. So he wanted to work on a kind of product design and, and, you know, it took, it took about it took me months, man. It took me months to get him on board to understand that the, you know, maybe the most difficult product problem is getting someone to convert to your product. Uh, you know, if you look at conversion funnels in e-commerce, you look at conversion funnels, B2B sales cycles are long. You know, people are, people are very well informed. People are extremely well informed about your competition. They know what their alternatives are. It's really hard for you to bullshit your way through, um, you know, uh, to the customer to get them to believe that what you're selling them is the best thing. And so, you know, this is, this is why, you know, growth design and marketing design is so exciting is because if you look at a conversion funnel, 90%, at least 90% of people that come to your website, considering your product, never buy your product. They don't, you know, and if they download your app, they never come back to your app. This is a classic top of funnel problem. So how do you, how do you acquire those customers and keep them around? Mm-hmm. I can't think of a more exciting, like if you're in a business and you're, and you're looking for ways to show design value in the business, you know, God, get into the growth team, get into the, you know, the marketing team and figure out ways to chop down that 90% drop off rate to 60% or 50%. Um, and there are definitely ways to do it, but there's, it's impossible to do with pixels or only pixels. The way you do it is forging alliances between other teams in the business. And so I got, I had to, I had to show this guy 
that um, this is how that world works and that, you know, the work on the marketing side is not meaningless. Um, it's actually quite substantial. It's quite meaningful and maybe drives the most impact to the business up front. Um, and I don't think I ever convinced him. I'll be completely honest with you. I don't think I ever convinced him, which like, which sucks, you know, it really sucks because I, I see as part of my job and being a leader is not just growing people's ability, but growing people's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think I might have failed in that uh, with him. But I will say I'm mostly successful in this world. You know, now at Candid, which is my my current company, at Candid, the very first person I hired was a was a a uh, researcher, um, and she's she's absolutely fantastic. And the first conversation I had with her, you know, I told her this is not going to be like you know every other you know, research, uh, team in other companies where you kind of go off and do research and you come back with insights and maybe, you know, maybe those insights get used, um, which is 10, you know, it tends to be how research is done. It's, it's looked at as kind of a cost center, right? I don't think research is a cost center. I think research can be a profit center if you think about it correctly. Um, and we've framed her entire work and she's loving it. She's having a really fun time with it, but all her work is framed in the context of how do we make that value transfer happen between the customer to the business and on our side, the value from the customer to the business is money, but also from the business to the customer, right? There's a value transfer on both sides. And it's important that the customer gets the the 51% of the value at least. It's important that the customer gets more value than the company gets. It's not 50-50 because when they get more value – your product will be seen as more valuable and that's where they start talking about you. That's where they tell your friends, their friends about you. Right. And so, you know, the very first, the very first person I hired was to lead that effort and she's doing a phenomenal job over the course of the last year. But um, yeah, of course I've, I've, I've hired people that don't have that mindset, but I've, I've worked very diligently and quickly to hopefully change that mindset. This sounds super interesting, this part about different research, design research method. I mean, I've done a lot of design research at IDEO. Um, sometimes I felt a little bit uh, like we didn't dive enough into the business side. Um, how did you, like, how, how is your design process, sorry, design research process different to what usually you would see in other design-led companies or teams? Well, so it's not reactive, um, it's very clearly based on three parts of our, uh, of our business funnel. So first of all, it's rooted in the business. It's not rooted just in the customer's world. Um, we, we have top of funnel, which is customers, you know, kind of prospecting products and thinking about which product might be best for them. And we hope that they pick us. And when they pick us, you know, our business is pretty unique because, you know, most products, when you buy the product, you buy the product and now you own the product. Well, that's not true in Candid's case. So we do, uh, we do, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we correct people's teeth. We straighten people's teeth with invisible aligners for 65% less cost than braces or other invisible aligners. So it's, you know, it's orthodontist designed and directed. It's at home. So it's, it's got all the tailwinds that, you know, the direct to consumer businesses have, which is absolutely fantastic. But in, in, you know, if you, if you go to Warby Parker and you buy a pair of sunglasses, you own those sunglasses for us, you know, we have to make two sales, believe it or not. The first sale is we need to convince you to purchase our impression kit, which is where you take an impression of your teeth and you send it back to our doctors who create your treatment plan, like a 3d treatment plan for you. Um, but then that, you know, the second sale happens when we show you your treatment plan. And now we got to show you, 
um, that we can, you know, not only move your teeth, but you're going to be excited about it. And uh, you're going to trust it because it was done by orthodontists, not general dentists or general practitioners. And so, you know, our research team is so focused on that. We call that the middle, the mid funnel journey because we're making two sales and it's so important that customers have the best experience possible um, in the shortest time frame to get them from the impression to the treatment plan to their aligners. And so, you know, we, we spent a lot of time on that mid funnel, but it's not reactive because we mapped out these funnels and we mapped out projects inside of these funnels because we knew we would have certain issues um, in the mid funnel that needed to be rectified. And, you know, we have quarterly goals and we're coming up at the end of Q1 of 2018. And we've already hit about 70% of our goals for the quarter. And all of it was because the research team started a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we're, we're, we're hitting our, we're hitting our conversion targets. We're hitting our, our revenue targets. We're hitting our C, the, the customer effort uh, score. So we, we, we score customer effort by asking people how difficult it was to do certain things. You know, those scores are coming down. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the first thing is we root it in the business. We map it out and we go on the offense and we tackle things from day one. We don't wait for problems to occur. The second thing that we do that's been extremely important is our research team. You know, it's, I almost never see them at their desk. They're almost never here because they're constantly, you know, we've got multi floors for our office here. They're constantly on other floors, listening in on customer calls, talking to our COO, talking to our head of finance, spending time with the marketing team, spending time with the other designers on our team, on customer calls, doing lab tests. My goodness, the gamut of work that happens on that team is so rich and substantial. I'm so proud of it because the team is so young. It's so, you know, we're nine months old, this company, Mm -hmm. um, and it's already having such a massive impact in the business. But we didn't stop there because it's not good enough to to have this kind of, you know, behind the scenes impact. So the third thing that we do, so the, 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 let me just clarify. First thing rooted in the business, map it out, go on offense. The second thing, uh, you know, get away from your desk and and be highly inclusive of other people on the team Mm -hmm. as well as the customer. And the third thing that we do, I think is so important. And so many companies miss this. Um, We share our insights in person with people in the company once a month. So every month, once a month, we have an hour and a half, a 90 minute meeting where our research, our head of research, she gets up, she talks about all the work that's been done, all of the holes we found, all of the problems we've rectified. And it's with the entire company present. And by the way, because research doesn't work alone, because it, research, the research team requires everyone else's input and, and uh, everyone else's effort. It's a great forum for the research team and the design team to, you know, call people out in the crowd and say, you know, thank you, you know, Sally for doing this and thank you, yeah. Georgia, for doing that and thank you, John, for doing – and it feels so good because it's a great way for the company to get together it's a great way to, you know, for people to feel like they're being represented, that their work is being represented outside of their teams, and they get to see the impact on the customer, which is so important. So those are the three things we spend a lot of time, a lot of time on. Awesome. So are just designers doing the research, or do you also like include people from marketing, purchasing, other departments? We um, so. 
So let me let me let me be clear. When you say doing the research, um, you know, there's one of the, in my in the episode with Rochelle King, she talks about you know the different kinds of of research. I'm talking about high resolution now for a second, but um, she, yeah. she talks about the kinds of research uh, and the kinds of data that Spotify does. She talks about kind of three layers of of data where you're, you're either data driven, uh, data informed, uh, or data aware, and you know for us. Our, our research team, um, our research team is an insights team, but you know every other team in the company spans the spectrum from being data driven to being data aware. So, for example, the marketing team, it's all numbers, right? It's all conversion metrics. You're looking at a funnel, and you're looking at how many people drop off at the funnel. So, it's extremely data driven. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, the way they work is they look at a number fall and they go to the research team and they say, Hey, can we go to usertesting.com and do a test on the survey? Cause we lost a few users last month and we're trying to, you know, cause we have an, on, an online survey, which is kind of part of our top of funnel, uh, growth, uh, tactics. Um, and you know, they go to the research team and then our research team that they're made up of researchers, like professional researchers, um, they set up the test, they find, uh, people to do the test with, and you know, this Alan, this is hard, you know, it's a lot of hard work before you ever run a test. You need to, you need to scope the right people. You need to vet them to make sure that they're not going to skew your data. You need to write the test out. You know, there's a lot yeah. of legwork that goes into that. Um, but then it's a collaborative process because we bring in the marketing team and we get them to look at the user tests. Um, and you know, we give them insights, but more importantly, the marketing team, comes up with their own insights that are completely different to ours that they can bring to the table. And so, you know, that happens a lot. But there are other teams that are not data-driven, but are data-informed and data-aware. So our support team, for example, you know, they're not data-driven, but they need to understand using data where the pain points are in the customer journey so that they can anticipate how many phone calls to expect as we scale the company so that they can tailor scripts uh, for the problems that people are having so that they can hire people correctly. Um, and all of that comes through data, through research. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's, you know, the, the research team is not a reactive, uh, it's not a reactive team that kind of sits in the background and waits for other teams to come to them. Our research team is on the offense, constantly looking for ways to better the customer experience by forging alliances inside of the company, being highly inclusive, and getting other people to do research with them. Because it's exciting. It's really exciting mm-hmm. to watch your customer work. You know, like that's fun. Um, and most people don't have fun at work. And so we think it's important for people to have fun. And the <laughs> best way to have fun is just have fun with the customer. There is one thing I want to dive deeper into um, because I'm not sure I fully, fully know how I would do it myself. Is like, okay, you said you start, it's, it's, so the research is deeply rooted in the business, mm. right? Let's say that I go and I have an interview with a potential user or even a user, right? How do you uh, prepare the discussion guide and what type of questions do you ask that you get this type of information? Um, so if you have any examples of that, that would be great. So that I really see like um, how this translates into reality. Well, you have to be really clear about the goal of the conversation. So we never go into a conversation with a user expecting to chat. 
right? We Because it's expensive, we pay people to come in, we pay people uh, to take user tests online. Um, and it's designed to be, expected, uh, to be expensive because we use that expense as a forcing function to be clear about what the goal of the research is. So you kind of start there. Um, and then what we do, um, and I'm not sure if you do this at IDEO or not, it's definitely something we did at WeWork. It's something I bring here. Um, I know this is something they do at Google, but we form two layers of questions. So once we have a goal in mind, um, so let's say, let me, let me use a real world example. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Okay. Let's say, you know, I talked about our quiz, our survey on our website being top of funnel. And it's one of the, you know, we get thousands of emails a day through that because people are constantly trying to figure out if they're a candidate uh, for Candid. And um, assume the marketing team came to the research team and said, hey, you know, we're looking at our conversion funnels and we, you know, we're, we're, we're completing 20% fewer surveys or people are making it 20% less to the end of the survey. And so people are dropping off faster um, and, you know, we're not able to collect their email. We're not able to diagnose their problem. You know, can you help me with that? Okay. So now we have a real problem that we can, we can do some research in. Well, the next thing our, our research team would do is kind of frame the goal of the research. And we would say, you know, maybe the goal of the research um, is to optimize uh, the, the survey questions to get people to complete the survey uh, more often. Okay, well, that's a good goal. That's a very clear goal, which we, we know that we're looking at a funnel. We know we're, we're looking at the survey and we know that it's top of funnel. Okay, so now the next thing we do is we would write research questions. Um, and research questions are different to customer questions. So research questions are business questions that we ask of ourselves. And then you kind of nest under that customer question. So I'll give you one example of a research question might be, you know, why are people, why are customers falling off the survey 20% more this month? Okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not something you're going to ask a customer because that doesn't make any sense to the customer, right? Sure. But now because you've got a research question, now you can frame customer questions that might answer your research question. So you might say, you might ask the user, the customer, something to the effect of, you know, hey, John, thanks so much for joining us today. You know, we saw that you you took our survey, um, but you you dropped off. And we we're just curious, you know, what was the last question you remember? So, okay, so we're, we're now we're poking holes as to how, mm-hmm. you know, how, were they actually paying attention to the survey? And we know what their last question was because we track, you know, we track the people running our survey. So, so yeah. we look at that. Then we might ask them, you know, tell us about, you know, your mindset in the survey, you know, did you feel like we were asking you uh, informative questions or did you feel like we were asking you salesy questions? You know, something like now I, I'd probably frame that question a little bit differently because you don't want to lead the user into an answer. So you might ask them something to the effect of, you know, tell me what you thought about our questions, um, you know, going into the survey and understanding that we were going to diagnose you as a candidate, do you feel like we were meeting that bar? And now you Mm -hmm. get the customer to start talking and they might say things like, yeah, but you guys have 27 questions and that's too many. And I don't have that much time. And I was doing it on my phone. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and, and, and and I I was on my phone and I lost signal and like your survey has graphics on it. It just takes too long to load. And now we're learning all of these things. So we're saying, Oh, okay. Got it. So maybe we need a lighter weight survey. Um, but it's all tied back to a the, the the goal of the research and b what that research question is. And so, you know, what I try and do 
with our research team is we, we try and have no more than three or four research questions and no more than about four or five customer questions inside of those. And, and if you, if you do your job, if you, if you frame the questions correctly within a span of about 45 minutes, you can start to get patterns and, you know, within a span of about five or six conversations, those patterns will definitely be, will, will amplify. And now you can go back to the design team and the marketing team and say, hey, you know, I found, you know, here's what customers are saying. It's very clear that, you know, most of the people are doing this on their phone. And this is a hard survey because, you know, we're asking 27 questions and 27 questions on your phone is extremely tiring. So we need to reduce the number of questions or whatever, you know, dot, dot, dot. You can infer whatever insight you want, but that's how we do it here. Nice. Really cool. So like, so you wouldn't do it just to get the answer to the question, why are people dropping out of the questionnaire? Because then it would be just be probably 15 minutes long, the conversation, right? Exactly. Exactly. You want to, you know, it's important. So it's so important that companies spend money. It's important that this is an expensive process. I know that sounds weird, but because it's an expensive process, it's going to force you to spend more time with the customer, be extremely deliberate about the questions you're asking. Um, and it'll force you to follow up with the insights. If it's free, you're probably not going to do anything about it. But if you're spending $100 per customer and you talk to 10 customers and it's costing $1,000 to figure out what's wrong with your survey, well, it's really easy to tie a thread to make a business case for why $1,000 is not that much money because you know there are millions of dollars yeah. riding on this. That's easy. But the fact that you spend money and you spend all this time up front being diligent about the questions that you ask, it will force you to, to close the loop uh, and address the problems through insights from the customer. And that's, that's why that money piece is such a good forcing function uh, for the research team. There's one last thing we should touch upon in this kind of bracket, because uh, once you've done, done this research, how do you then present the results? And what I mean uh, with this question is, um, for example, like, could you talk about any case study of how you then track the metrics of uh, the results of this research and then how you presented this to maybe non-designers to show the value of this, why this process works, right? Sure. So, um, well, let's start with, let's start with how we track it. This is such an important question. And this is why, you know, this is why I'm not doing this myself. I, I got a professional researcher. Her name's Dr. Sudi Majd. Um, she's a, a behavioral, uh, behavioral economist, behavioral scientist. She studied, um, you know, she studied, uh, how to get people or she studied a kind of how to persuade people to take certain actions, but also, you know, the, the art and science of, um, of why people make certain decisions and how you kind of push them into, into certain, uh, not corners, but certain pathways, right? Like this is kind of her, her bread and butter. But, you know, once we start capturing our insights and results from these, uh, from these research sessions, they, they, they're most likely going to go into a spreadsheet. Um, and it's most likely going to be graphed somehow. Um, you know, we, and I don't do any of this. She does all of this, but we, you know, we look at uh, things like efficacy for the quality of impressions customers are giving us with the putty that we send them, the impressions of their teeth. Um, and turns out it's really hard to get people to give you a high quality impression uh, if you're not instructing them correctly, but you need to follow 
you need to follow cohorts of customers. And so Sudi uses her spreadsheets to create customer cohorts, to do studies, different studies with different groups of people, come up with different insights for different groups of people, and then chart the efficacy for these cohorts over, say, a three-week to a one-month period. And then, you know, that's not enough. What you don't want to do at that point is just email, you know, email a bunch of people in your company the the, the the uh, spreadsheet because no one's going to look at it. Let's be honest. Everyone's too busy. What you want to do is you want to get people in a room. So that's where we do our monthly meeting with the team. Um, and she, she gets people in a room and she walks through case studies uh, slide by slide. She puts a presentation together and she walks through it slide by slide. And she shows the effects of each piece of research on different cohorts uh, and different groups of people. Um, and, and it's so amazing to see because sometimes what we realize is it's not a solvable problem. It's just a hard problem and this is just somewhere the business is going to lose money and we have to be okay with it. And sometimes we realize that the the, the difference between a 30% accuracy rate and a 70% accuracy rate was poking holes in the putty, which believe me, this is real, by the way. Um, you know, like we figured out that if people poked holes in the putty, then and, and, you know, one of the things that we realized is people were not positioning their teeth properly in the putty. Um, but if they poke holes, then they have a marker to see where their teeth need to go. And that's such a crazy thought. It took us weeks of work to get to that answer. It almost feels like a stupid answer, but it absolutely like almost tripled conversion rates on, on, on efficacy, which is – or doubled it at least, which is kind of amazing to think about. But all, yeah. of, you know, all of that came through research and a lot of hard work on Sudi's team's part. And so um, you know, when we presented it to the team – we presented the holes as a solution. Well, now we know we need to give people uh, in their impression kits, we need to give them a little poker. So we had to go to the procurement team, to our operations team, and figure out where we can procure a poker and how much it's going to cost. And we had to go to the finance team to make sure it wasn't going to hurt the margins on the product. You know, that, So now you see the thread is longer than research because the business decisions that come with the research insight uh, is, is now the hard part. Like getting buy-in from people and then operationalizing it is the, is the hard part. So we spend a lot of time on that as well. Mm. That's really, really awesome stuff. And thanks, Bobby, for, for sharing all this very cool case studies. I want to be also mindful of your time and, uh, just, I just have two couple, uh, last questions. Sure. Um, pretty short ones. Um, so the first one is what advice would you give to a young designer <laughs> who's mm. just starting? Well, I, I, I hope I'm still a young designer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've been doing this for 16 years, but I, I still feel young. I feel like I have a lot of stamina. And I think that's it right there. It might be something that, uh, that I would impose on people that are starting in design right now. Um, you know, there's a, uh, a recruiter uh, in, in, the, in the States. Her name is Judy Wirt. And um, she, she talks about this too, and I, I really enjoy it. But young designers, you know, coming into the – coming into the industry today, man, they, they're coming in with so many advantages, but also so many disadvantages. You know, the advantages, uh, the advantages being, look at the tools that exist for designers today. My goodness, you know, 16 years ago, we, we had a, a you know, a skeletal, uh, kind of skeletal view on, on, 
the kinds of products we had to use, those products were great for their day. But when they, when they kind of, when we compare it to what exists today with the Figma and the Envision and Sketch and even Photoshop and Adobe, their entire suite of products, by the way, Creative Cloud, think of that, you know, I don't know how long you've been designing, but I got into to design by pirating software. You know, like I, I, I couldn't afford Photoshop. Are you kidding yeah. me? A thousand dollar purchase back there. I, I, I didn't make any money in design. And so, yeah. you know, Creative Cloud is such a massive breakthrough. The fact that you can now get into this world for $50 a month and have access to the entire suite of Adobe products. It's such an amazing tailwind that, that designers are coming into this beautiful suite, this ocean of tools uh, that's at their disposal to help them with their craft. You know, but there are disadvantages too. Yeah. Um, you know, the, some of the disadvantages, um, you know, it, it's they're entering a, a, a very fast changing world. Uh, the concept of an interface is changing rapidly. The, because the tools are changing rapidly and because people are using products on different interfaces, um, it's harder uh, to build something uh, or design something useful for people. Because, you know, think about it, voice, so the voice interface um, that will uh, soon be, I think, maybe the primary interface of, uh, of contact with customers um, on, in certain parts of their day. You know, I personally have zero experience in that world, and that's something I'm going to have to design for, which is mm -hmm. kind of amazing to think about. So, like, the disadvantage there is the world is changing faster than design is changing. And, and uh, we need to build the tools to keep up with that, but we also need to build a flexible mindset and be excited about this change and welcome it um, and do a lot of hard work and endure the changes so that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you know, we're still adding value um, in ways that customers expect us to add value for them. And so, you know, kind of long-winded answer here, but I think endurance matters a lot for designers coming into this world because the world around them will change and they will feel like they don't know their craft and they'll have to relearn it just like doctors relearn their craft every few years, you know? And mm -hmm. so endurance is going to matter a lot. I think a sense of entitlement that designers have today needs to be tempered, massively tempered. You know, we live in a world where it's so easy to get a design job, but that's not always going to be the case. You know, people that have frustrating job experiences leave too quickly um, without figuring out ways to solve it because the advent of Behance and Dribble and LinkedIn and AngelList um, and, you know, all these job boards where people reach out to you for jobs, there are jobs readily available for these designers and they hop, skip and jump too quickly. And what that what they might be too young to realize is nothing important gets done in a year or two. It is years of work. It is years of endurance. It is years of perspective on a single problem that will get them to make that substantial thing that they've been wanting to make all their lives. You know, designers often get into this world because they want to change the world. Well, yeah. that takes time and it takes it takes stamina and it takes endurance and patience. Um, and I would impose that on people a lot, especially in their early years where it's so easy to be frivolous. Um, and it's just one of those things that, you know, with age, I've come to realize is, is just so important. Cool. And the last question is, um, what is one thing you changed your mind about design uh, after you recorded the high resolution podcast? 
What's the one thing I changed my mind on? Well, yeah. Well, I, I don't, again, it's, it's, you know, I kind of went on this journey expecting certain things and a lot of my expectations were met. If anything, you know, my, uh, my value system for, for connecting design and business, um, was, was, was forged even more strongly because it became so clear to me, you know, I, at, at, for high resolution, I spoke to people that I looked up to. I spoke to people that I, you know, yes, considered my peers, but these are people who I feel like, you know, I felt like I could learn a lot from and listening to them episode after episode, uh, just listening, listening to their, um, their take on how important it was for design and business to be a kind of a fusion of efforts, uh, made me realize that we were on the right path, um, that, uh, most people are not yet enlightened in this world, but they will be because a lot of smart people are working hard to make it so. Um, it got me to understand that there are some 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 sensationalist factions in the design world um, where you know d- where there are some designers who feel like uh, the business piece is you know not irrelevant, but a distant second because the user matters so much. And it's, you know, it, it got me to realize that this is not true. I think the, the user and the business are so intertwined um, that designs, you know, there's almost their sole purpose and maybe their advantage is that of everyone else in a company, designers have should have purview into both the internal workings of a business and the external workings of a customer in order to influence the decisions the business makes to to uh to benefit the customer uh in the end and you know that but that requires the designer to care about business and mm. you know it just got me to it just got me to a place of such resolve and it was so fulfilling to experience that with people like, you know, uh, like Rochelle King, people like Andrea Mallard and John Maeda and Phil Gilbert and Tom Kelly, who I'm sure you know very well uh, through your IDEO background. Um, you know, just listening to these people, Scott Belsky, um, you know, uh, um, just listening, listening to these people speak um, made me realize that we're betting on the right horse if we're betting that the business is also important. And um, I think that's a very important message, especially for design leaders, but maybe even more, especially for people getting into design today, because they have a chance to give business a chance. Mm. And I, I have to say, I really liked your talk at the IAGA, where you actually talked about this thing. And I think you even uh, used the term customer centricity there, which yes. I found really, really interesting. So yes. for anyone listening who's interesting, interested in that, you can, I think, find this talk on either YouTube or also like on the high res podcast. I think the last episode is actually your talk, right? It is. Cool. Well, Bobby, thanks a lot. Thanks. I really, really appreciate it. I hope you also had a good time and thanks a lot again. Well, I, I had a fantastic time. Uh, you were a great host. And for all the designers listening out there, you know, um, we have the best job in the world. Yeah. And it's important it's important that you remember that because we get to build things and create things from our imagination that people love to use and very few people get to do that and that is both you know a 
a kind of vocational responsibility that we should take very seriously, but also a personal responsibility that we should be in awe of um, and and have a lot of um, uh, an honor uh, because you know, very few people in the world get to do what we do. And I have the time of my life doing it. And I'm so excited to be in this community. Alan, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you again. Cool. This is the end of the episode. If you like the show or this episode, please leave a review on iTunes or any other podcast app. This really helps me a lot with uh, getting other great guests and also helps other listeners find the show on this crowded podcast market. And again, if you do want to learn more about business, you can visit the beyondusers.com and take a five-day email course. And uh, in these emails, you can basically learn about five uh, business concepts that are relevant for designers. Thanks for your attention and see you next time.